Hi, my name is Ryan, and welcome to This Amazing Life, the show that brings you people and topics that inspire you, the listener, to live, love, and lead your own amazing life. In episode number 20, we are going to take a trip together back in time, and we're going to learn the stories of three women, one you probably know, one you probably don't, and one that you probably wish that you did, each of which was able to carve her own path through history leaving a lasting legacy in a world that even now struggles to accept, protect, and acknowledge the accomplishments of women. Welcome to This Amazing Life. Our first stop through history is back in the 1860s. If you can imagine... We're on the brink of war. The United States is torn in two, quite literally. The North versus the South. Brother against brother, friend against friend, family against family. Over what should happen to the future of our nation, what turned to be one of the single worst engagements in United States history, the Civil War was a conflict beyond belief. Despite the destruction, the chaos, the death that ensued, one single bright spot began to shine brighter and brighter through all of the darkness. Clarissa was working as a recording clerk in the U.S. Patent Office in Washington, D.C., when the first units of federal troops poured into the city in 1861. The war had just begun. The troops were newly recruited, and residents of the capital were alarmed and confused. Barton, on the other hand, perceived an immediate need in all of this chaos, for providing personal assistance for the men in uniform, some of which who were already wounded. Many were starving, and some without any bedding or any clothing except what they carried on their backs. She started by taking supplies to the young men of the 6th Massachusetts Infantry, who had been attacked in Baltimore, Maryland, by Southern sympathizers and were temporarily housed in the unfinished Capitol building. Like very few other women, Barton provided clothing and assorted foods and supplies to the sick and wounded soldiers on behalf of many organizations, even though she had no official affiliation with them. She collected some relief articles herself, appealed to the public for others, and learned how to store and distribute them. Besides supplies, Barton offered personal support to men in the hopes of keeping their spirits up. She read to them. She wrote them letters. Often she would listen to their personal problems and she would even pray with them. Clara Barton knew that where she was needed most was not behind the lines in Washington, but on the battlefields where the suffering was greatest. This unwavering need and desire to be on the front lines serving the people that needed her most would quickly earn her the nickname the Angel of the Battlefield, as she served troops at the battles of Fairfax Station, Chantilly, Harper's Ferry, South Mountain, Antietam, Fredericksburg, Charleston, Petersburg, and Cold Harbor. Incredibly enough, Clara Barton even took it upon herself to take and collect the information that she received from all of the soldiers that she cared for to piece together the stories or identities of over 22,000 missing men by helping to establish the Office of Correspondence with Friends of Missing Men of the United States Army. President Abraham Lincoln himself wrote, To the Friends of Missing Persons, Miss Clara Barton has kindly offered to search for the missing prisoners of war. She went through and answered over 63,000 letters 
in order to locate thousands upon thousands lost soldiers of war. Does the name Clara Barton ring any bells yet? If not, then maybe the name of the International Service Organization, which she is responsible for bringing to the United States, might make her a little bit more recognizable. At the turn of the century in 1900, the American Red Cross received its first congressional charter, all thanks to the efforts of one Clara Barton. If you happen to visit redcross.org, you can actually check every year they put out an impact report that details just how many people, meals, homes, gifts, supplies, services they've provided, not just in the United States, but with 22 other partnering countries around the world. Last year in 2018, the American Red Cross provided more than 1 million overnight shelter stays. They served over 20 million meals. They delivered over 9 million relief items. They've ensured that over 3.9 million people around the world have received disaster assistance and even helped vaccinate over 195 million children against measles. Clara Barton was easily the first woman that I selected to share with you in this first edition of Amazing Moments in History because of her service heart that led to such an unbelievable impact of positivity, service, kindness, love that has touched the hearts of legitimately millions of people around the world. For more information about Clara Barton and the American Red Cross, you can check out redcross.org, which is where I got most of the information and passage reads from that I shared with you. The next leading lady in our story is one you might not have heard of before. Nevertheless, she was another remarkable woman all unto herself, a savvy businesswoman, vocal activist, and mother who, just before her passing in 1919, had created a business empire that sold products in six different countries, trained and empowered over 20,000 independent working women, and laid the foundation for her daughter to become one of the first self-made millionaire women in America. And what exactly was the source of this woman's success, you might ask? Dandruff. Sarah Breedlove was born on December 23, 1867, on the same plantation in Delta, Louisiana, where her parents, Owen and Minerva, had been enslaved before the end of the Civil War. Orphaned at age seven, she and her older sister survived by working in the cotton fields of Delta and nearby Vicksburg, Mississippi where she also became a domestic worker. At 14, Sarah married her first husband, Moses McWilliams, and when Sarah was 18, her daughter, Alalia, was born on June 6, 1885. When her husband died two years later, Sarah moved to St. Louis to join her four brothers who had established themselves as barbers. Working for as little as $1.50 a day, she managed to save enough money to educate her daughter in the city's public schools. As was common among black women of her era, Sarah experienced severe dandruff and other scalp ailments, including baldness, due to skin disorders and the application of harsh products such as lye that were included in soaps to cleanse hair and wash clothes. Other contributing factors to hair loss included poor diet, illness, and infrequent bathing and hair washing during a time when most Americans lacked indoor plumbing, central heating, and electricity. Sarah learned about hair care from her brothers, though she soon became a commissioned agent selling products for Annie Malone's 
Poro Company, which at the time was a leading brand in African-American products. During this time, Sarah began to take her knowledge of hair to develop her own product line. In July 1905, when she was 37 years old, Sarah and her daughter moved to Denver, Colorado, where she continued to sell products for Malone and develop her own hair care business. Naturally, a controversy developed between Annie Malone and Sarah because Malone accused Sarah of stealing her formula. However, the mixture Sarah used of petroleum jelly and sulfur had actually been around for 100 years. It was following her next marriage to Charles Walker in 1906, she finally became known as Madam C.J. Walker and marketed herself as an independent hairdresser and retailer of cosmetic creams. In 1906, Walker put her daughter in charge of the mail order operation in Denver while she and her husband traveled throughout the southern and eastern United States to expand the business. Take two seconds and just imagine, a woman and her husband, let alone at the time a very noticeable minority in the United States just after the Civil War, traveling around the South, going door to door, church to church, community to community, building her business one customer at a time. Between 1908 and 1910, Walker continued growing the company while also relocating from Denver to Pittsburgh and eventually establishing the company's headquarters in Indianapolis, where she created the Madam C.J. Walker Manufacturing Company by purchasing a house and later building a factory, hair salon, and beauty school to train her sales agents and add a laboratory to help with research. Not only did Madam C.J. Walker expand her physical assets, but continued to increase her company's sales force by training other women to become beauty culturists using the Walker system that was designed to promote hair growth and to condition the scalp through the use of her products. By 1911 and 1919, during the height of her career, Walker and her company employed several thousand women as sales agents for its products. By 1917, the company claimed to have trained nearly 20,000 women as her company's business market expanded beyond the United States to Cuba, Jamaica, Haiti, Panama, and Costa Rica. In addition to training in sales and grooming, Walker showed other black women how to budget, build their own businesses, and encourage them to become financially independent. Again, just imagine one woman just after the Civil War trying to help and to empower other African-American women. In 1917, Inspired by the model of the National Association of Colored Women, Walker began organizing her sales agents into state and local clubs. The result was the establishment of the National Beauty Culturists and Benevolent Association of Madam C.J. Walker Agents. Its first annual conference, convened in Philadelphia during the summer of 1917 with 200 attendees, the conference is believed to have been among the first national gatherings of women entrepreneurs to discuss business and commerce. In addition to enabling women, Walker was a leading activist and philanthropist of her time. She served on the New York chapter of the NAACP, was a leader in the Circle for Negro War Relief, which advocated for equal training and rights for black army officers, and assisted in the organization of several protests. Before her death, Walker bequeathed nearly $100,000 to orphanages, institutions, and individuals. 
her will directing two-thirds of future NEF profits of her estate to charity. Remarkably, at the time of her death, her personal wealth was over $600,000, which in today's equivalent is over $8.5 million. Truly, this was a woman who wouldn't back down, wouldn't accept failure, and somehow always found a way to push forward. Not only helping to build a future for herself and her family, but for tens of thousands of other African-American women across the country. For more information about Madam C.J. Walker, you can visit Wikipedia, madamcjwalker.com, or her profile on the Encyclopedia Britannica at www.britannica.com slash biography slash madam dash c dash j dash walker where the passages selected were found. The last character in our narration is one that you'd imagine finding as the leading heroine in a World War II action and adventure movie. Traveling the world to exotic locations, meeting interesting and mysterious characters, jumping out of airplanes, hiding behind enemy lines. And in fact, that's exactly the type of life she lived as a photographer. In his book, Last Days of a Legend, Sean Callahan says, the woman who had been torpedoed in the Mediterranean, strafed by the Luftwaffe, stranded on an Arctic island, bombarded in Moscow, and pulled out of the Chesapeake when her chopper crashed, was known as Maggie the Indestructible. Margaret Burke White's interest in photography began as a hobby in her youth, supported by her father's enthusiasm for cameras. Despite her interest, in 1922, she actually began studying herpetology, the study of amphibians, at Columbia University. Following the death of her father, she transferred colleges several times, ultimately graduating from Cornell University. A year later, she moved from Ithaca, New York to Cleveland, Ohio, where she started a commercial photography studio and began concentrating on architectural and industrial photography. Beginning her career in 1927 as an industrial and architectural photographer, she soon gained a reputation for originality, and in 1929, the publisher Henry Luce hired her for his new Fortune magazine. Her notoriety and skill continued to garner more attention as she became one of the first four staff photographers for Life magazine, which began publication in 1936, and her series of photographs of Montana's Fort Peck Dam was featured on the cover and used in the feature story of the very first issue. During the 1930s, Burke White's camera would shift from showcasing towering structures to appealing towards our humanity, highlighting the severe plight of the victims of the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. The depiction of these economic tragedies helped inspire one of her famous 1937 Life magazine photographs of black flood victims standing in front of a sign which declared, World's Highest Standard of Living showing a sign of a white family driving a car behind them. It also helped inspire the artwork for Curtis Mayfield's 1975 album, There's No Place Like America Today. And she would even go as far as collaborating with her future ex-husband, Erskine Cloudwell, to publish their book, You Have Seen Their Faces, in 1937. 
Burke White very quickly expanded her horizons, not limiting herself to the Americas, but also would travel to Europe, to Germany, Austria, Czechoslovakia, Russia, Pakistan, and eventually even India, just to name a few countries. She was actually the first female war correspondent and the first woman to be allowed to work in combat zones during World War II. In 1941, she traveled to the Soviet Union just as Germany broke its pact of non-aggression. She was the only foreign photographer in Moscow when German forces invaded. Taking refuge in the U.S. Embassy, she then captured the ensuing firestorms on camera. As the war progressed, she was attached to the U.S. Army Air Force in North Africa, then the U.S. Army in Italy, and later in Germany, repeatedly coming under fire in Italy in areas of fierce fighting. In the spring of 1945, she traveled throughout a collapsing Germany with General George S. Patton. She arrived at Buchenwald, the notorious concentration camp, and later said, Using a camera was almost a relief. It interposed a slight barrier between myself and the horror in front of me. After the war, she produced a book entitled, Dear Fatherland, Rest Quietly, a project that helped her to come to grips with the brutality she had witnessed during and after the war. Margaret Burke White is equally well-known in both India and Pakistan for her photographs of Dr. Bimrao Ramji Ambekdar, Mahatma Gandhi, and also the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. She was, quote, one of the most effective chroniclers of the violence that erupted at the independence and partition of India and Pakistan, according to Samini Sengupta, who calls her photographs of the episode gut-wrenching. And staring at them, you glimpse at the photographer's undaunted desire to stare down horror. She recorded streets littered with corpses, dead victims with open eyes, and refugees with vacant eyes. Burke White's photographs seemed to scream on the page, Sengupta wrote. The photographs were taken just two years after those Burke White took of the newly captured Buchenwald. Sixty-six of Burke White's photographs of the partition violence were included in a 2006 reissue of Kushwant Singh's 1956 novel about the disruption, Train to Pakistan. She had a knack for being at the right place in the right time. Case in point, she interviewed and photographed Mahatma Gandhi just a few hours before his assassination in 1948. To Burke White, there was no assignment and no picture that was unimportant. Margaret Burke White lived a life of adventure most people could only dream about, chronicling major events in history, staring down and showcasing some of the world's ugliest and most brutal events. It was only until symptoms of Parkinson's disease began to take serious effect that she quietly had to leave the profession. The disease would eventually claim her life in 1971, and she passed at the age of 67. Her legacy still remains today and can be seen at a number of exhibits, including the Brooklyn Museum, the Cleveland Museum of Art, the New Mexico Museum of Art, the Museum of Modern Art in New York, as well as other collections in the Library of Congress. As if she hadn't accomplished enough in her life, she also released over 12 publications of her own and is featured in nearly as many biographies chronicling her life. For more information about Margaret Burke White, you can visit Encyclopedia Britannica online at britannica.com biography slash Margaret Burke White on Wikipedia and also on the International Center of Photography's page 
at icp.org, where the passages selected and narrated were found. Well, there you have it. My first take at Amazing Moments in History. If you don't know it from conversations from me or anything else that I've said in any of the other episodes, one of my goals aside from the podcast is to start doing voiceover work. So I thought this would be a great chance to practice doing some type of a historical narration and trying to find interesting characters that would be really great to highlight. The reason why I picked these three was because two or three weeks ago now, it was International Women's Day. And I was kicking myself a little bit for not jumping on that opportunity to release this type of episode on the day of. So I ended up picking three figures that I thought were very interesting that for even for me, one that I had heard of but knew very little about, one I had no idea that even existed, and another that I thought would just be really incredible to have an opportunity to have a conversation with if she were still alive today. So before you move on, if you have an opportunity, Think about just how much of an impact each of these women had in the lives of other people, how hard they had to work, especially given their circumstance with regards to what period of time they were living in. I mean, can you, I can't even get over the fact that one was the first female war correspondent, one grew up and was born and lived on the same plantation that her parents were enslaved just before, but then she went around and turned her life around after moving across the country several times through a couple different marriages and helped create an enormous amount of wealth and taught and empowered thousands of other women. And the first one that I talked about, she helped bring the American Red Cross into existence. Really just amazing individuals. So I hope that you enjoyed my narration. I hope you got some factual information or a little bit of inspiration from each of these figures in time. Thanks so much for choosing to listen, and I hope you have an amazing day.